Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are uh, in Parshat Vayeshev, and we are in uh, a part of the Joseph story, um, the Joseph novella. So if you'll recall, uh, Joseph is the son of Rachel. And Yaakov, so Rachel being the favored wife, uh, Joseph is the oldest son of Rachel, um, so is has you know a different status with Jacob than all of his other sons. He has twelve sons and Dina, so thirteen kids. And um, Joseph has a special status with Yaakov. Um, it could have been Benjamin, I suppose, as the youngest son, but of course. Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin. So for Yaakov, um, probably a complicated relationship um, with Benjamin, uh, who essentially cost him, you know, the love of his life. So Joseph is treated differently than the other brothers. Joseph is favored uh, and Jacob is pretty demonstrative about his favoritism with Yosef. All of you know the musical, so you all know that he had a kutonet pasim. He had a coat of many colors, um, and it was a special sign of Jacob's favor that he gets this garment made for him. Um, there's lots of discussion about what this garment is, um, but it's very clear that it's a it's a status symbol for Yosef um, that that Yaakov gives him, and and he's just kind of obnoxious, and he's just you know kind of full of himself. And he runs around telling his brothers the dreams he has of them serving him or bowing down to him. You'll recall um, Joseph and his dreams. And eventually they've had enough and they uh, have the idea to get rid of him. So they throw him in a pit and they're going to leave him there to die. Then there's an argument among the brothers and, um, one of the brothers says no, one says yes, and then they decide that they're not going to kill him. They're not going to leave him there in a pit. Um, it, you can imagine a big um, cistern for collecting water. Uh, and so you leave someone in there and they can't get out. So essentially they thirst to death. Um, and they decide they're going to sell him instead. There's a caravan of Ishmaelites coming by and they sell Yosef into slavery um, of course, the important one of the most important parts of the story is that he's sold into slavery where in Egypt. So this is always Egypt is a dangerous place. We know that always in Torah. Egypt is dangerous, very dangerous, um, not usually bodily. So it, Egypt is the code in Torah for corruption, for material comfort and wealth that is seductive and can undermine the commitment to living a life of ethics and values. Um, so Egypt is dangerous in that it is comfort. It is wealth and tempting, therefore, uh, very tempting. So he sold into slavery. This is what's going to set the stage for the Israelite slavery in Egypt, right? So the Joseph being sold into slavery in Egypt is the beginning of the story that winds up with the Israelites enslaved in Egypt, which is going to begin our next book right after Genesis. 
uh, Joseph takes up fully a quarter of the book of Genesis. And um, so from now until the end of the book of Genesis, we're dealing with the Joseph story. Exodus picks up the book of Exodus picks up with a new Pharaoh who doesn't remember Joseph. So this is a story that sets the stage for how Jacob and his family get to Egypt, where they will uh, eventually become enslaved. Okay, so we're in the kind of the middle of the story. Um, he has been sold into slavery. He, he, we are at the part of the story where he is purchased by, um, by a wealthy and powerful uh, man in the Egyptian world. His name is Potiphar. Uh, and that is where we're going to pick up our story. And then we're going to see where we go from there. So we are at chapter 39 um, of the book of Genesis. And um, so we're going to pick up here um, with Yosef Hurad Mitraima, right? So um, Joseph is brought down. Remember, Egypt's always down. You go down to Egypt. So he's brought down to Egypt and he's purchased by Potiphar, a courtier of Pharaoh, and his chief steward bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. We're going to get in this part of the story, thank you, exclusively the name Yudhevavhe for God, exclusively in this part of the story. So Elohim is used sometimes. Here it's going to be in this part only Yudhevavhe. So Yudhevavhe was with Yosef, and he was a successful man. And he stayed in the house of his Egyptian master. We're going to, we're going to hear, look at how many times Potiphar is called uh, an Egyptian. And when his master saw that Yudhevavhe was with him and that Yudhevavhe lent success to everything he undertook, he took a liking to Yosef. He made him his personal attendant and put him in charge of his household, placing in his hands all that he owned. This was very common. Um, slavery in Egypt at this time, it was very common to put slaves in charge of administrative functions in the house, particularly Asian slaves. Um, Egyptian slaves were often the ones who were doing the hard work in the fields and doing the really awful uh, work that breaks down bodies. Um, often foreign slaves were the ones who were placed in administrative positions in households. Um, for instance, we have from the record, uh, you know, somewhere around this time, we have from the archaeological record a person's household uh, who was a well-to-do person in Egypt with 80 slaves and then um, a ranking of what their names were and what they did. And so looking at those kinds of records, we know that this was very common, that someone like Yosef, um, who was purchased um, from outside of Egypt, was, and he could read and write and he was bright uh, and we know cultured because he was the favorite son of a very wealthy man. Um, he would have been put in uh, administrative in an administrative role. And from the time that the Egyptian put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, Yudhe blessed his house for Yosef's sake, so that the blessing of Yudhe was upon everything that he owned in the house and outside. So Babait Uvasade in the house and in the field. He left all that he had in Joseph's hands, and with him there, he paid attention to nothing save the food that he ate. Now, Yosef was well-built and handsome. All right, so he is Yifei To'ar, Mar'e. This is the same language used about his mother, that Rachel was Yifei To'ar. She was beautiful of appearance, um, 
And so Yosef clearly is, you know, apple doesn't fall far from the horse's mouth. He has his mother's beauty, um, which could be another reason that Yaakov uh, dotes on him. So is that he looks like his mother, right? He got, possibly he got the looks of his mother. And very common in Torah to say after these events, right? So after these things, so some time has passed. We don't know how much. It doesn't matter. Torah doesn't care. Um, what it's telling us is that Yosef is in this position. Things are clipping along really well for him. God is favoring him. Everything's groovy until after these things, this is always going to be a problem. What is the problem? The master's wife cast her eyes upon Yosef. <coughs> and she says, lie with me. He refuses. He said to his master's wife, look, with me here, my master gives no thought to anything in this house and all that he owns, he's placed in my hands. He wields no more authority in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing from me except yourself, since you are his wife. So Joseph is a slave. He can't lose his mind with her. He can't smack her. He can't yell at her. He's got to be very careful how he declines her, her more, more than just offer, right? It's more than an offer. It's an order, essentially. And he's got to be very careful how he goes about this. What's, what is his reasoning going to be? So he's smart enough not to tell her, are you kidding me? You really, right? He doesn't do that. He says, the master has, your, your husband, my master has trusted me with everything in this house. He's given me same authority as him over everything and everyone. The only thing he's withheld from me is you, because that would be appropriate. You're his wife. How could I do this most wicked thing then, meaning to my master who has trusted me? And then he adds a sin before Elohim, right? A sin before God. He doesn't use Yudhevafe here, maybe because he's trying to communicate with somebody who obviously doesn't have experience of Yudhevafe. So he's using a generic term for the divine or gods, right? And as much as she coaxed Joseph day after day, so it's not letting up, this continues. He did not yield to her request to lie beside her, to be with her. This, this word, lishkav etzla, we're not sure exactly what that means. Maybe she tempers her request and says, lie next to me. Um, etzel is next to, and this is not usually how you talk in Torah terms about laying with someone sexually. Um, we don't know. We, we, we're not sure, but maybe she tempers what she's asking to try to coax him just to lie down beside her. And then she'll take it from there and see what happens. In any case, she doesn't let up. And one such day he came into the house to do his work. None of the household being there inside. So that's important. Nobody's around because she's going to say something later, right? That we know is a lie. She caught hold of him by his garment and said, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and got away and fled outside. 
So she grabs him by the outer garment that was worn by those who had status in Egypt. Otherwise, you had one garment, only one garment. But people of higher station had an outer garment that you would take off when you came into the house, into the residential part of your world. That came off. um, And that's what she grabs. He comes out of it. And so it's left in her hand. And he gets away when she saw that he had left it in her hand and fled outside. She called out to her servants and said to them, look, he had to bring us a Hebrew to dally with us. This one came to lie with me, but I screamed loud. She can only claim to have screamed loudly because we were told there's nobody around. Nobody. So she's making this up, obviously, but nobody can contradict her because nobody was around. So she's smart. Um, One of the really important things about rape is that you had to scream. If there's no scream, there's no proof that you tried to resist. So I would love to say that that's so archaic. Ha ha ha. Aren't we so glad we've come so far? But unfortunately, we haven't come that far, right? That She asked for it. She deserved it. What was she doing alone with him? Blah, 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 blah. Um, Screaming was very important. And this is, if you'll remember the story of Dina, their sister, who is raped. That's how everyone talks about it. But part of the question is, did Dina scream? Um, Anyway, so, so that's an important piece. Is that She said she screamed, meaning she tried to resist. She said no, and he didn't listen. That's rape. That's a violation. When he heard me screaming at the top of my voice, he left his garment with me and got away and fled outside. She kept his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she told him the same story, saying the Hebrew slave whom you brought into our house came to dally with me. Look at the Hebrew. What does the Hebrew say? Right? To So we've seen this verb lots of times. Um, we, this is what this is what Ishmael is doing with Yitzchak when Sarah decides he's not going to inherit with her son, right? So we're not. So this might be sexual. It might not be. It might be he came to annoy me. He came to insult me. He came to tease me, um, which might be what Ishmael's doing. We don't know. But what we know is it's very possible that that it's a sexual kind of playing or toying or teasing. Um, so, so in any case, she says, you, the, the Hebrew slave that you brought home, thank you very much, came to toy with me. But when I screamed at the top of my voice, he left his garment with me and fled outside. When his master heard the story that his wife told him, namely, thus and so your slave did to me, he was furious. So we have to imagine he's furious for a lot of reasons, right? <laughs> partly that a slave would have the audacity to assault his wife, but possibly it, he's, he's mad at the wife. <laughs> you know, we, if he knows his wife at all, it's very possible he's now losing his most prized slave. He's, and it's not just a slave. He's, he's put everything into Joseph's hands. Joseph knows all the books, all the accounts, all of the slaves, all of what they're supposed to be doing. He's running a great house and 
it's very possible Potiphar is angry that he has to get rid of Joseph. Because what's he going to do? Say he doesn't believe his wife? So Joseph's master had him put in prison. Like that, that's what happens. Um, where the king's prisoners were confined. So he's put in a white collar prison where the king's prisoners are confined. So he's put in a very nice place. He's not in, you know, um, Alcatraz. He's he's in a country club for prisoners, but his status fed. completely changed. Say he's, again. In club, he's in club fed. Yes, he's at club fed. Exactly. Um, so he's still a prisoner, but he's not, you know, he's not in what we tend to think of as a dungeon. And we're told that, that there as well, Yudhe Vavhe was with Yosef. Um, God extends chesed to, to Yosef. And causes Joseph to uh, win favor in the eyes of the head guard, the head guy at the prison. The chief jailer put in Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in that prison And he was the one to carry out everything that was done there. The chief jailer did not supervise anything that was in Joseph's charge because Yudhe Vafe was with him in whatever he did, Yudhe Vafe made successful. So just like in the house of Potiphar. So he goes from being the treasured son to being nothing, literally nothing in the ancient world. You were a slave. And he rises to the top of that situation. And then because of the master's wife, He loses all of that. And again, all of his status as a trusted um, administrator in Potiphar's house is gone. And now he's in prison. And again, because God is with him, um, Torah reminds us over and over and over, this is about Yudhei um, and that he rises again to the, to the top of what's possible in that situation. We know what that's going to mean. We know that because he's in that prison, and he's now dealing with Pharaoh's baker and butler, we know what this is going to do for Yosef because we've read the story, (laughs) right? So, um, but it's setting him up to then rise, not only out of prison, but to rise to being vizier of Egypt. All right. So now we get the story of the cupbearer and the baker um, and Pharaoh's angry with them and puts them in custody in the house of the chief steward in the same prison where Joseph was confined. Of course, Um, in the exact same place where Yosef happens to be. Um, And the chief steward assigned Joseph to them, right? Because they're very high ranking. They're, they're, They're body servants of Pharaoh. So these are people who are allowed to get close enough to Pharaoh to offer him his personal cup and the other to to feed, literally to feed Pharaoh. So these are very close people to Pharaoh. They've not been killed. So they're hanging out in custody. So um, they dreamed each in the same night, their own dream, and each dream with its own meaning. When Yosef, Yosef came to them in the morning, he saw that they were distraught. And he asked Pharaoh's courtiers who were with him, in custody in his master's house saying, why do you appear so downcast today? What's going on? Now, Yosef is in charge. Yosef doesn't have to ask how the prisoners are, right? If they're not bleeding out, presumably like he, he just needs to do his job. So clearly 
Um, clearly, Joseph notices that they're out of sorts, and he takes the time to stop and ask them what's going on. It's only because of that that he learns their dreams. It's only because he takes the time to stop and look them in the face and say, you don't seem like yourself today. What's going on? That's when they say, we had dreams and there's no one to interpret them, which is very distressing. If you have a very powerful dream and there's no interpreter around, what are you supposed to do with that? Right? That is a very upsetting um, state of affairs in the ancient world. So Joseph says to them, surely God can interpret, tell me your dreams. So another level at which we see, again, not Yudhei here, it's Elohim, the generic for deity. Um, but it's another way that we see that Yosef has changed. Yosef has changed in that he's not claiming the ability to interpret these dreams as he did to his brothers. He had dreams. He told his brothers what they meant. Um, Now, what is he saying? Now he says, God will interpret. The chief cupbearer told his dream to Yosef. He said to him, in my dream, there was a vine in front of me. On the vine, there were branches. It had barely budded. When out came its blossoms, it clustered uh, into ripened grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes, pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Yosef says, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will pardon you and restore you to your post. You will place Pharaoh's cup in his hand, as was custom uh, formerly when you were his cupbearer. But think of me when all is well with you again. And do me the kindness of mentioning me to Pharaoh so as to free me from this place. For in truth, I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, nor have I done anything here that they should have put me in the boar, which is interesting, like this word used boar here, which also is the same word for what, Mary? A pit. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So Joseph is saying, pit. I haven't done anything to deserve being put in the pit. And so for Joseph, it's the same thing. Like for Joseph, he uses the same word. He doesn't say prison. He doesn't say club fed. He says, I've done nothing to deserve being put in the pit. So Yosef understands that it's the same thing, whether you're in a prison or you're at the bottom of a cistern, it's the same situation. He's risen, he's been high and he falls. He's been high and he falls. And he didn't do anything in any of these cases um, to deserve what happened to him. When the chief baker saw how favorably Joseph had interpreted the butler's dream, right? He's like, okay, well, I'll tell you mine as well. There were open baskets on my head, um, food for Pharaoh that I would, someone like me, a baker would prepare. The birds were eating out of the basket on my head. And Joseph says, the three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale you on a pole and the birds will pick your flesh. Lovely. On the third day, his birthday, Pharaoh made a banquet for all his officials, singled out his cupbearer and his baker from among them. He restored the cupbearer to his cupbearing and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, just as Joseph had interpreted. But the chief baker, he impaled, just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not think of Joseph. He forgot him. All right. So 
Now, then the next Parsha is Miketz. As you can see, chapter 41 will begin uh, Parshat Miketz. So, so we're in the part of the story where Yosef has had two devastating changes of status from being the favored son of a sheikh in Canaan um, to being nothing, to being nobody, to being right um, sold into slavery, less than nobody. <laughs> You're somebody who everyone else gets to tell you what to do. And he makes the best of that. And he makes the best of that situation. And then once again, without having done anything to deserve it, um, he is thrown into prison where once again, his fate is decided by other people. He interprets these dreams on behalf of these folks and says, okay, so just the only thing I ask of you is remember me to Pharaoh. Do me, do me a solid and remember me to Pharaoh. And they don't. So it's a way to remind us that Joseph, again, has no power. He has no say over what happens in his life, in his destiny. He's done everything he can. And now it's up to somebody to decide to help him out. Or not, Barry? Uh, yeah, I was wondering what you think about uh, the two uh, the, the two competing uh, theologies that we see in in the Tanakh. Uh, when you have, uh, I think, the priests who are writing texts about how everything you do in this world, you get punished in this world. There is no afterlife in the Bible, and no punishment after you die. Uh, and then there's the competing philosophy where uh, you have this uh, predestined uh, destiny. And if you were meant to rise to the top, no matter where you are, even in prison, you'll be the top prisoner. Um, so I'm not, think, I'm not sure how directly competing those are, especially since the author keeps telling us over and over and over again, you'd have with Yosef. So it, D- destiny is not outside of Yehovah's purview, right? I mean, God is God is directly involved with what happens to Yosef. It's not just that he has a predestined future. It says God looks favorably on him and causes, right, him to find favor in Potiphar's eyes. It's it's attributed to Yehovah by the author. So, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's so. That that's a direct competition to the theology that says you're. So where where did you get the afterlife and all the reincarnation business that we have today? Uh, so it's later. It's rabbinic, uh, mostly rabbinic. Um, we do get some of it in the late biblical period, but really, it's it's the rabbis who are concerned about the afterlife. And they're, they're exposed to that, you know, idea. And, and it's not that we don't have any of that in Torah because we have Sheol that, you know, you go down to Sheol, lo hametim ya hallelujah, because they're down in Sheol, right? The, the dead can't praise you because they're down in Sheol and you can't hear them. So they, um, there is this sense, remember, you'll remember that, um, Saul has someone raise someone from the Samuel. dead. The right, Samuel, thank you. Uh, to talk to him, so uh, to tell him stuff he needs to know. So there is necromancy, right? That you're risen from the dead, and the dead have knowledge that the living don't have. There's this business of going down to shale. So there is some of that in Torah, not a lot. They're not really 
concerned about it. But the rabbis become much more concerned about it, um, possibly because of how terrible things get for the Jews. Okay, somebody has got some noise going on. I think that's uh, <clears throat> Barry. Is there a motorcycle outside your house? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm muting. Okay. Um, what was I saying? Uh, so possibly once you've got the exile and the Jews no longer control what happens to them and they're living in foreign places and they are now subject to anything the government wants to do to them, read King church, whatever. um, That's when you start to see more of a focus on there's not going to be reward and punishment in this world. That's in any sense, just there's something on the other side of this world, Olam Haba, um, the world to come that where some of this is worked out because otherwise, and we talk about this a lot in here, otherwise, if you have an all good, all knowing, all powerful God and things are not just in this world, you have a problem. You you have a theological issue. And the way that the rabbis deal with that is like so many other traditions. Well, we don't know what God's got waiting for us on the other side of all this business, but there is another way this will be worked out where it will be fair. Um, We see Christianity, that's exactly the direction Christianity goes. uh, And that works out pretty well for them, (laughs) right? Turns out, turns out people really like that answer. Yeah, it's okay. You're poor here. You're suffering here. Not a problem because on the other side of this, you're going to have, you know, 80 virgins, you know, don't worry. You're good. Okay. I just totally mixed religion. Some of the the Eastern religions uh, with endless rebirth. Yes. So that's another way. But in the end, it becomes a bad thing. (laughs) So, well, it depends. Um, So if you do things right enough times in the, in that recycling, you know, re, what is it called? Reincarnation. Then you, you get to achieve Nirvana, right? You get to achieve, you don't have to come back. Um, But if you really screw it up, you're coming back as like a grasshopper. Um, I always wondered the people who believe in heaven. So because a lot of people, in our society believe that and they say oh i'm gonna go get to see my aunt whatever do they have to see the bad people too <laughs> well it depends what tradition you're in if you're in christianity no because where are the bad people oh yeah that they're in hell oh yeah right oh yeah she said. Like, <laughs> and oh, like yeah. what age hell are the people <laughs> when you get to see them are they their young selves are they the old Well, believe it or not, the rabbis spend a good deal of time on this. If a man is married and his wife dies, then when he goes to heaven, olam haba, because there's only there's only heaven for us. Um, then which wife is he going to be with? <clears throat> and when when God reconstitutes us, because that's one of the thirteen principles of faith, is that we will we will be bodily reincarnated when God takes care of all the business and judgment day comes. We are all going to be resurrected. Well, the rabbis are very concerned about which wife this guy is going to be with because they're both going to get bodily resurrected. Like, uh, (laughs) this is going to be a problem. Yeah, I'm just going to pass for now. Yeah, exactly. So so reincarnation is one way. And the rabbis do have, there is reincarnation in Judaism. They call it a Gilgul, a cycle. Uh, What's Gilgul, Barry? How do you translate Gilgul? Literally. Um, Like rolling something. Yes. So like if you're rolling something, one one turn of that is a Gilgul. 
And so the rabbis have Gilgulim, that we have cycles that we go through. So that that is present in uh, rabbinic writing and rabbinic thought. But more common is Olam Haba, that when we die, we our, our, our nefesh, our soul goes to Olam Haba and is with God. And then eventually it will get put back in our bodies when judgment day happens and we are all bodily reincarnated. So, and it'll, be, it'll be very crowded. And it'll be very crowded. Um, like a roller coaster. Yes, Mehmet. Right. So um, like that's why folks try to figure out a way that they don't have to come back. Right? It, right. And that's what we're seeing with Yosef right now. Right. This he's on a roller coaster. Right. And that's what life is. And it's not so fun. And in the ancient world, it was even less fun um, for most people right, than our lives, which are pretty darn easy if we really look at them. Um, and so most people in the ancient world suffered a lot. And imagine how many infant deaths there were. Imagine how much plague. Imagine like people just dropped out of your world. War, like so many horrible ways for your life to get upended. What would be a feminist reading of the story of Mrs. Potiphar? Of Mrs. Potiphar. Who, who appears to be nameless. Um, I don't think there's a feminist reading of Mrs. Potiphar. I think this is definitely a patriarchal text that's talking about women and how they use their wiles and how they always get men in trouble. And right. She's, you know, lascivious. And I mean, I just, I don't have a great reading of it. What I do love is that she grabs him by his garment and he comes out of his garment and she's going to use that to trick her husband. Okay. What did we see with the brothers? Oh, they right. They took his coat and they used his coat. They tore it, dipped it in blood and brought it to Yaakov to trick Yaakov into believing something about Yosef that wasn't true. That's what I love about this part of the story is that it's a beautifully written literary tale that she also grabs his garment and is going to use that to trick her husband into believing something about Yosef that isn't true. And each time that happens, it's another, um, it's another madrega. It's another level, another step in the Joseph story. It's, it's a, it's how he gets to the next iteration of whatever's going to happen is that somebody has a garment of his and is going to trick someone else into believing something about him that isn't true. And what we're going to see next week, I don't know if we're reading it because I haven't looked at the triennial division yet, but what are we going to see? He's washed and shaved and put into Egyptian clothing to stand before Pharaoh. All right. Yes, Judith. There's another story um, from the rabbis that people who who convert who were born during or after the war are replacement souls for those who were murdered. I've heard that in, in many cases and, and find that very interesting, of course, that we're replacing somebody who was murdered and have a even more serious obligation to live the life that was lost. That's really creepy and very Jewish. <laughs> I don't find it creepy at all. I find it assuring that that's part of why I was so drawn to it. That uh, I maybe think, I think what's hard about that is to t- to tell any person you're here to replace somebody else is right. 
it just really, I don't know, it's bothersome to me. And um, it, it's the darker side of Judaism and, and being a people who have survived so much anti-Semitism is that's yeah. the dark side of Judaism. We were told, you know, you, you stand for 6 million. And so, you know, you need to take this tradition seriously and you need to live a good Jewish life because 6 million are gone. And it's just kind of like, it's just really dark for, for you to, to choose that narrative. I totally get, um, for those of us who had it put on us, I can understand that too. Yeah. It's a dark side of our tradition because you don't really matter. You know what the other people I'd matter. You're only a replacement. You're a replacement part. And, um, it's just, yeah, it's really, it was, I've never felt that. So, okay. Um, what was I doing? All right. Uh, we stand on other shoulders for sure. Dana fine for sure, which is fine. I think it's fine to <laughs> get it fine. Um, it's, it's fine to say we stand on other people's shoulders that we don't get here by ourselves, that we are not on third. Cause we hit a triple, you know, that other people helped us get here. That is respectful and wonderful and gorgeous. And, you know, we should all take that seriously. Um, that's very different to me from, you you are replacing someone who's gone. That's your point. That's your purpose but, for being. But we also are named after people who have died. So there's this sense of, well, what is the meaning in that? So that we, that we keep their name alive. I, so that I understand that there's a little, you could tweak it a little bit that you're, there's something, there's an innuendo that we're continuing something and continuing it maybe in a better way or growing, you know, building on it so i guess i'm relating more to what uh, judith is feeling you Mm -hmm. know that you can tweak it into a more positive yeah you do that okay i'm going to share my screen so where i want to go with this is is a little crazy but stay with me so i just had um lunch with somebody that i've been wanting to get to know better uh, uh reverend bruce Freeman of St. Matthew's. He's the rector at St. Matthew's Episcopal Church here uh, in the Palisades. And we're having lunch and we're talking. And he starts talking about this book he's reading and that he is totally into and that he's gonna, he's putting together a very small study group about. And it's about the second half of life. And that that life has two halves. And the first half, I'm gonna show you, um, is about building the container. And the second half of life is about what's supposed to be in that container, you know, feeding what's supposed to grow in that container. And that many people don't get past the first part of that. And that's fine. Like it's not judgy at all. It's just saying some people just because it's their subsistence level or whatever. um, They just don't get to the second half. And so I started, I looked up the book um, that he's talking about, and it's called Falling Upward. And so this is the, this is one of the themes of the book, which hopefully you can see on the screen. There is much evidence on several levels that there are at least two major tasks to human life. The first task is to build a strong container or identity. The second is to find the contents that container was meant to hold. All right, that's a quote from the book, Falling Upward. Where did I find it? I found it on the website of one of my favorite folks, the Velveteen Rabbi. 
So just I was just looking for the book to like order the book. And I come across the Velveteen Rabbi talking about this book. And I love her stuff. Rachel Bamblatt, I love her stuff. So then, so then she goes on and she says, the basic argument of falling upward is that most of us get caught up in the first half of life, issues and struggles, and never make it to the second half of life, work that can only be done after one has done the internal work of the first half. All right. One of the challenges of spiritual life is staying open to being changed. So now she's going to quote the guy who wrote Falling Upward again. The familiar and the habitual are so falsely reassuring that most of us make our homes there permanently. The new is always by definition unfamiliar and untested. So God, life, destiny, suffering have to give us a push, usually a big one, or we will not go. Someone has to make clear to us that homes are not meant to be lived in, but only to be moved out of. The soul has many secrets. They are only revealed to those who want them and are never completely forced upon us. One of the best kept secrets and yet one hidden in plain sight is that the way up is the way down. Or if you prefer, the way down is the way up. So then she goes on. The Hasidic masters had an aphorism for that. Yerida litzorech aliyah, descent for the sake of ascent. That is a frequent theme in Torah. What's in the parentheses there, people? The Joseph story is a paradigmatic example, right? All right, see, this is when life gets really so cool, right? Out of this conversation, I'm looking up this book, looking up this book, I'm looking at her piece. Now let's go to her piece on the Joseph story. Joseph's story is the classic example of descent for the sake of ascent. He's thrown into a pit, which is a necessary precursor to being lifted out. He's taken down into Egypt, which is a necessary precursor to rising in Potiphar's employ. He is thrown down into the dungeons, which is a necessary precursor to being lifted up and becoming Pharaoh's chief vizier. In English, we say what goes up must come down. But in this story, before we can rise, sometimes we first have to fall. Nobody wants to do that. (laughs) It's human nature not to want to fall. We speak of depression as a pit from which it is difficult to emerge. We speak of difficult life experiences as narrow places, a kind of personal mitraim. We don't want to fall ill. We don't want to fall down. Professional acclaim comes from going up the ladder, not down it. We surround ourselves with possessions, college degrees, and even children, as though those could guarantee us a life of nothing but ups. But every life contains some falls. Everyone descends sometimes into sorrow, into difficult circumstances, into sickness, into something. What's interesting to me, she says, is how Joseph handles his series of descents. By the time he's been thrown into Pharaoh's dungeons, he could easily be bitter and resentful. Time and again, life has thrown him curveballs. Surely this is not what he expected. His, where is, this is not where he expected his journey to take him. He could be forgiven for railing against the unfairness of it all, but he doesn't. Instead, Torah tells us that God was with him. Torah says that four times. I'm not sure whether God is with him because he's humble or the other way around, but he's gained some humility along the way. When the cupbearer and the baker come to him in prison to ask him to interpret their dreams, he says, surely God can interpret. 
He knows now that he can interpret dreams, not because he's such a bright guy, but because he opens himself to the presence of God, right? And that is the lesson of this week's Parsha, that the source of all being is with us, even when we fall. Falling can be a precursor to rising. And her point being, we can't, there, there are times we can't rise if we don't fall first. And what Rohr, Father Rohr is saying in his book is, because I read ahead, um, he says, and the book is coming tomorrow, I'm very excited, um, is that falling is, it's those challenges and the really hard stuff that those of us who are open to it really experience fully, the pain, the fear, the anxiety, the depression, the loss, the grief. It is those, the humiliation, the shame, Those are the things out of which the second half of life, if we choose to go there, that's the stuff it's made of. It's not just we we rise. It's that you can't rise if you haven't fallen, right? If you've just been up here, that's not rising. That's staying. It's only through falling. It's only through the difficult, painful, awful parts of life and the lessons that those bring to us that we are able to then make meaning out of what's in the container and to nourish what's in the container, not just building the container, right? And that is that is exactly what she sees in the in the Joseph story, that it's it's not just that he's able to rise when something terrible happens. It's that there is no rising if he hasn't fallen. And that, that that's true for all of us. And Roar is saying, most of us, ego would rather do anything other than change. <laughs> Almost anything. Again, I read ahead. But that change is like death to the ego. And ego doesn't like that. And so we get locked. We lock the wheels because we're so terrified of change and what that means and, and the letting go that's going to be involved in deep change. Um, and that often deep change happens as a result of having to let go of our health, of our understanding of who we are, of our status, of a loved one, of whatever, a future we thought we were going to lead that we didn't and don't and won't. That it's that that really is the stuff that informs the growth of what's in the container, not just making a nicer container. And so it's just fun for me when different parts of life come together and they both land in Torah study. (laughs) It's all connected people. It's all connected. (laughs) So, um, all right. I want to read one more thing, a short paragraph with you, and then we'll, um, (laughs) yay, Lee, you're hilarious. Okay. Um, this is from, uh, uh, Rabbi Bradley Shabit Artson. And so uh, I just want to look at this paragraph. He's got a whole piece here on this part of the Joseph story. But um, Joseph experiences the depths of despair as an Egyptian slave and as a prisoner in an Egyptian jail. In that prison, Joseph learns how to sympathize. He learns that prisoners at the bottom are still human beings and that one can excel without having to minimize the talents or interests of other people. In prison, Joseph accepts a basic principle of Jewish living. Kol Yisrael arivim zebazeh. All of us are responsible for each other. 
In prison, Joseph shows an interest in the dreams of the deposed butler and baker, and in caring for such lowly people, he in fact plants the seeds of his own restoration and future glory. Joseph learns that his own talent can thrive best with other people's well-being. Far from being a threat, the happiness of acquaintances, friends, and relatives form a supportive environment in which each of us can blossom. Arrogance isolates, not skill. Ruthlessness, not drive, leads to loneliness. By living in a community, we can support each other to be the best that we can be, and in that way, we all serve to hasten the rule of God on earth. Mic drop. <laughs> right? Building the kingdom. We're building the kingdom, people. Um, as my Christian pastor friend used to say to me, I'd say, how are you today? She'd say, building the kingdom. Rabbi, I'm building the kingdom. Right? It's hard work building the kingdom. So, but right, and we get that, right? Those of you, you know, this day after Thanksgiving who showed up on this screen, get it, that I mean, I think that's exactly why we keep showing up to this business is because in community, we become the best that we can be in helping each other live in to the best that each of us can be. We really understand not just the power, but beyond that, the the impossibility of some things that we, if we don't do it in community, there are some things just that just aren't possible um, for us, unless we do it together. Um, and then if we're in this together. So um, thank you, as always, for being part of this, um, such an incredibly rich part of, of our KI uh, communal life. Um, this day after Thanksgiving, um, I'm, I'm super aware of that. Dana? Um, I was just thinking that in this Joseph story, when he reveals the meaning of the dreams, he doesn't know that it's going to work out for himself. And there's kind of a lesson there that when we go and make our choices to do good, to try and help and not be arrogant, you know, we don't know how it's going to turn out and we have to just do it. Maybe that's, you know, faith in God's godliness that we just move forward. Um, Lovely. He doesn't know how it's going to end up. Well, that's absolutely true. Right. And that we can look back and see how things played out for us and that that fall was going to mean certain things that we learned from that, but we don't know that at the time. We just know that it sucks. You know, we just know that it hurts. We just know that it's awful. We just know that we're terrified because we don't know what's going to happen on the other side of it. And so I think that's part of what Roar is talking about when he talks about the, the work of the second half of life, right? Is some of that, that, even as it's happening and we're like, I don't know how this is going to turn out. What I know is from my past experiences, I will live through this or maybe I won't. But if I do, this is going to inform how I live in some kind of significant way. Right. You know, like I remember going into hip surgery thinking, I don't know how this is going to change me, but this is going to change me. The, the terror, the pain, the fear, having something that was mine taken out and something fake put in was such a distressing thought to me. I don't know why. You know how much I love science fiction. But my point was, like, I knew enough to know. I'm not sure how this is going to change me, but it is going to change me. And I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know what I'm going to gain from this experience, but I know I'm going to gain insight in ways I can't imagine yet. Um, and I think that's that's what he's getting at that work of, I don't know how it's going to work out, 
but I know I'm going to know something at the, on the other side of this that I don't know now. Um, and that trust and that ability to hold whatever's happening to us, knowing it is going to inform who we become is, is, is a real component of growth in the, in the, the work of the growth of the second half of, of life. David? Amy, I'll bet that everybody group understands that real change really only occurs in life. Um, the real powerful of change, of getting up off the floor and shaking off and saying, I can, you know. So, David, you're breaking up. Um, so I couldn't really hear what you were saying, but I, what I think I heard you say was something about that that kind of change only happens, are you saying, in the second half of life? No, just really, it's, <clears throat> I think it occurs after you go through these liminal moments when there's this, and your train moves from one track to the other. And it's interesting because I don't think it has to do with the second half. It has to do with the crisis that we all live through it. You know, that's when change really occurs. Sure. Um, I don't think they're unrelated, though. I, I mean, I, I don't think that's unrelated. That that no, it's not. That's right. Not that a lot of those right. knocks that we take early are about how do I overcome that to build the container? Right. How do right. I overcome that so that I can get a better job? So I can make more money? So that my family will be secure? Right. You know, the, overcoming those knocks earlier in life. And, I don't, and I'm not talking about time. I'm talking about levels, you know, that right. we're so busy building the container that, you know, you just want to get over the hurdle so you can help build that container. And what, what I'm fascinated by and excited to read is, all right, well, what, once <clears throat> that's done, like, okay, right? If you're not focused on that. That's when change occurs. That's when change occurs. That's when deep change occurred and so that's what i'm excited to is okay like i for the most part you know knock on something you know i built the container i just signed another 10-year contract okay okay it's probably my last contract that's it that was it like judith no that's i mean right there's something different that happens when i'm not focused on the container so much anymore it's kind of god willing it's it's kind of done A.J. Heschel has this great quote, to have more is not to be more. Right? And that when we're focused on having more, we, we be less. Right? We, we focus on being less, actually. Not even not more, but we are less in some ways. Right? Don't you think this resonates with everybody on this call? I hope. I hope. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.